0: I might just start with a quick clarification. I didn't, of course, mean that uh, the Bible doesn't give us uh, a work or something to do. Uh, I meant only that it's amazing how studying one book uh, can easily fill up four years and more. Um, That's what I meant. Um, If you uh, got a service sheet this morning, uh, you would have an outline of the sermon, so please follow along. Uh, And if uh, my wobbly hands uh, can use this thing properly. They should. Uh, the Bible verses should also be on the screen uh, behind me. Uh, let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word, which has the power to save. And it is by your word that we come to know you and your love toward us. I pray you use my feeble frame to honour you this morning and faithfully bring your word to us. Amen. Now this morning we continue our series on Genesis. And since the last chapter, 13 long years have passed and Abraham has reached the ripe old age of 99, which is quite a good age. And as we've been looking at the different aspects of Abraham's life, I wonder what moved Abraham through his long life, what got him out of bed in the morning. And when you reach a good age of life here on earth, I wonder what will you say about yourself What will you say have moved you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Now when it comes to Abraham and Sarah, we see they are motivated by God's promises. But as we saw last week, they struggled to trust God's promises. And as we come to this passage this morning, we must not forget where we have just come from in the narrative. You see, this last chapter with Abraham, Sarah and Hagar shows us a great and repeated failure of all humans. We see God as too little, and we see ourselves too large. That is, we underestimate God and we overestimate ourselves. Abraham and Sarah were seeking God's promises, but they saw the impossibilities of their situation and reasoned with themselves, if God has made us barren, then perhaps he intends to bring about these promises through Hagar. Misunderstanding God's grace causes us to inflate our own sense of importance and all too often we think that effort is required on our own part if we're to receive God's blessing. Now we've been talking about the life of Abraham but of course Genesis tells us a lot about God as well, his actions and his character. So as we ended our chapter last week we're left wondering why does God wait so long to bring about these promises and does Ishmael's birth bring about these promises? Today we will see that God waits until it is really too late and that he does this to magnify his grace and to glorify himself. I hope in the next 20 or 30 minutes that you'll see this passage is not about how Abraham receives his promises but that it is all about God's grace. It's a rather long passage so we best get started. Uh, Follow with me from Genesis 1. God appears to Abraham. God appears to Abraham and says, "I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. Since God first called Abraham out of Haran, he has made pro- many promises to Abraham. But this time, when God appears to Abraham, he comes to establish a covenant to make a formal agreement, a declaration of his intentions to Abram, and to put these promises in writing. Now we get a sense that something important is coming because God introduces himself. And when God reveals himself by name, He's giving us an insight into who he, he is. God introduces himself as God Almighty and this is the name God uses when he speaks to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. It's God's name in Genesis. Now two weeks ago we saw Abraham and God cut a covenant together, but here God has come to confirm and establish his covenant. And what does it mean to establish a covenant? It's important to note that in the whole Bible, only God establishes covenants. Two people might join and cut a covenant together, but only God establishes them. And it has the sense of to fulfill or to cause them to happen. God appears to Abraham and says, walk before me and be blameless. And what does abraham do in verse 3 abraham falls on his face god says walk and abraham falls face down now this is something my children would do when i say let's walk to the shops they fall on their faces but why does abraham do this i think he's confronted by god now we don't know if god has spoken to him much in the last 13 years the bible doesn't say But our last memory of Abraham was that of a passive and indifferent man who watched his wife beat and send off her pregnant young slave. So Abraham falls on his face in fear of God. Nevertheless, God continues to confirm his covenant. Now, as we said, God had already cut a covenant with Abraham previously, but this morning we don't see a different covenant but the same. And God here expands on the first in many surprising ways. It's almost as if God, when he has the pen in his hand, and is ready to write down the terms of his contract, that he can't contain himself. Formerly, God had promised to make Abraham's name great, to bless those who blessed Abraham, and promised Abraham children and land to possess. But here God expands. Before he is even brought about these promises, God defines in ever more concrete terms and seems to push off the fulfillment beyond Abraham's life. Abraham is to be the father of a multitude of nations. Now we know for a fact that Abraham never became a multitude of nations, not in his lifetime. He fathered Ishmael and he fathered Isaac. And two, is not a multitude. God is not content to bless only Abraham, as we have see, already seen in Genesis 12, when he said to Abraham, By you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This covenant God has come to confirm and establish has nothing left, nothing less than global coverage in view. Abraham shall be exceedingly fruitful. And this word is the one used... Uh, at the start of Genesis, when God says, uh, declares his intentions for all humans. And third, Abraham gets a new name, and later Sarai will get a new name also. But but perhaps the most remarkable aspects of this covenant with Abraham are to be found in verse 7, which I haven't put up there. In verse 7 it says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and your offspring after you. Now what does this phrase, to be God to you, mean? In the ESV it stands, sounds a little stilted. As it's, as it's just a direct translation in Hebrew. It's the NRV says, I will be your God this phrase will become the basis of many of God's dealings with his people. Jeremiah helps us understand this a little better. Jeremiah 32:38. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and plant them in this land of faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. And so when God says he has come to establish his covenant, he means to declare his intentions to Abraham. And what are his intentions? To do him good, all the time. God intends to put his heart and soul into Abraham's good. See, our glorious God, who though being God Almighty determined over some 4,000 years ago to bless not only Abraham and his descendants, but you and me through Christ. God says that he will stop at nothing to bring us good. These are extraordinary promises, actually extraordinary commitments from God, for he has made it part of his everlasting covenant with Abraham and has committed himself to the task. Now we move from God's side of the covenant to Abraham's. And we'll take the pronouncement of Sarah's maternity in this passage together. Let's read from verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. Every male among you will be circumcised. Circumcised? Let's pause here for a moment, as uncomfortable as that sounds. Circumcision is a rather weighty subject in the Bible, and this is the institution of that institution. However, time doesn't permit me to cover the whole doctrine fully, nor am I able to anyway. So we must be satisfied by trimming it down. I mean, sorry, cutting it short. Never mind. God continues, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now in what way is circumcision to be a sign? Well it's a sign of remembrance, a distinguishing mark and that's some reminder. Couldn't God have just required a bit of string on the finger or the writing of the covenants on one's forehead? But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let's cast our mind back about 13 years or a little more. As John brought us the word a few weeks ago, we saw that in Abraham's society a covenant was an enacted legal agreement. The animals there were cut in half to show what was at stake. It was as if God was saying, may I be like these animals if I do not uphold my end of the covenant. We actually see this phrase repeated many times in the Bible. You may have heard it. May the Lord do unto me and more also if I do not. Or in the NIV, that is, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not. See, the Old Testament was written in a society which enacted legal agreements, a signature by dramatic action and not scribbled on paper. God asks Abraham to show what is at stake by cutting human flesh. Now, our modern minds are trained to think a little individualistically about this. And so we chuckle, but we risk losing the point of circumcision. Abraham's wealth, his financial security was tied up in his family, in his descendants. This is why the lack of a child caused so much anguish for Abraham and Sarah. Whereas our inheritance might be assured by legal writ, a title, or a will, Abraham's inheritance and social standing was secured through his heirs. Abraham is asked by God here to show that this covenant and all its blessings depend in some way on his descendants. So what about the rather strong words near the end in verses 13 and 14? So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. You see, with these words we might be tempted to think that the covenant is in some way conditional, that it would become void through Abraham's disobedience, and that if this covenant is conditional, it cannot be certain of fulfilment. But if circumcision is to be a sign which shows what is at stake at the covenant, and God has already declared his endless favor favor to Abraham, and so despite the fact that circumcision requires some effort on Abraham's part, there is a very real threat of the covenant being broken. But this threat is to God's ability to bring about the covenant, not Abraham's. You see, conditionality and certainty of fulfillment are not mutually exclusive, at least not when God's grace is a factor. God is so determined to show Abraham grace that circumcision becomes a sign and a seal for that very belief Abraham had in chapter 15. So Paul says in Romans 14 that Abraham receives the sign of circumcision as a seal, of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. You see, as a sign, circumcision is not the ultimate reality. Abraham already had the mark of righteousness and received this by trusting God at his word. And so these promises here are shown to rest on God's grace and not Abraham's effort. Now God continues his covenant in verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. If there was any doubt that this covenant was not completely dependent on God's grace alone we now see Abraham's response to this last statement that he will receive a son. And What is is his response? Abraham repeats his action from before and falls on his face and laughs to himself. Abraham just can't help but see the situation before him in human terms. By nature and because of sin, we humans cannot imagine any other way out from that which is directly before us. I think Abraham is tired. It's been 24 years since God called him out of Haran and began promising him a son. Sometimes we can be so caught up in the things of life that we don't see what God is doing and tired of waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises. And tired of waiting, Abraham determines his own course of action to bring about that very thing he longed for, as we saw last week. And now, at 99 years old, confronted with what appears to be an impossible situation, Abraham's faith wavers. And so Abraham says, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. We here see that the father of faith is still wrestling with his own understanding of God's grace. Abraham only sees before him the humanly possible situation, but he doesn't see that God is doing something that is impossible. God is waiting until it is humanly impossible because God wants Abraham to know, to truly grasp the magnitude of his grace. You see, we know two things about God's grace thus far, that it is extraordinarily generous, and we see here that it is not earned and cannot be bought. This covenant and amazing blessings are certain, and they are certain because it doesn't depend on us but on God's grace. There is no other way. But if God's grace is a gift, and God's grace is certain, then where does that leave us? What part do we play? Let's move to our last section in the desert, and we'll pick up after the three men uh, who appeared to Abraham of Eton. The three men said to Abraham, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. In the past, God has appeared to Abraham and spoken with Abraham, but this time he comes for Sarah. Although he's talking to Abraham, the first thing they ask is, Where is Sarah, your wife? And knowing that Sarah is sitting there listening, he continues. And the following section comes as a triplet, a poetical triplet. The advanced age of Abraham and Sarah is noted three times, and as in all Hebrew poetry, each line adds to the last and escalates towards the main point. First we see in verse 11 that the narrator notes that Abraham and Sarah are old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Now we know... That Sarah was barren and at age 90 she is even past the age of childbearing. God hasn't waited until the 11th hour, but the 111th hour. At this stage Sarah is so. so far as Sarah is concerned the likelihood of her having children is impossible, even doubly impossible, and yet God promises her a son. And just like Abraham had laughed, so Sarah laughs. So Sarah laughs to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Now our English versions tend to smooth out some of the meaning of the Hebrew text here. Sarah really speaks down to herself and with quite a bit of disdain. She laughs to herself and says, After I am worn out. The word worn out could be translated wasted away, useless. And the word pleasure is similar to that of Eden with the suggestions of fruitfulness there. Now we know that for women in Genesis one's social status was caught up in their children and their heirs of their family. It was a mark of success and value. And so this... The question of Sarah about her value is her version of what we might pose today, am I beautiful enough? And yet Sarah has become despondent and, like Abraham, had given up on God's promise. How many times in your life, when you're enduring hardship, have you wondered, how long, O Lord? And how many times have you gone beyond that point and have sat with frustration in your heart towards yourself and towards God if he is the God of goodness why does he delay well let's see God's response in verse 13 the Lord said to Abraham why did Sarah laugh and say shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old see how God gently rearranges her statement of herself And then he asks the ultimate rhetorical question for Sarah's situation and turns her despondency on its head. God asks in verse 14, Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. Now the word that's translated hard here is sometimes translated as impossible. But it is also used... A lot in the Psalms, and it is translated there as wonders. It's also the same word used of God's actions in Egypt as He rescues the Israelites from slavery. So, what God is really asking Sarah here is is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Now, a little later, Sarah will come to see the unbelievable wonder of God's grace, and she will laugh again, but this time not in bitterness, but in wonder as she sees the fulfillment of God's promise. In the midst of her situation, she had lost hope, because by all human standards, the fulfillment of the promise was impossible. In Genesis 21, <laughs> Verses 6 and 7, Sarah says, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh over me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. See, God doesn't keep his promises because of Abraham and Sarah's belief. The father of faith and his wife, in fact, do not believe. The real reason Abraham and Sarah didn't believe that they would have a son in their life was that it was too wonderful for them. God has declared his intentions of grace. He made a pact with Abraham and all of his descendants that he would stop at nothing to bring about their good, to show his grace to generations. This covenant is not dependent on any human action, but God relies But relies on God's grace and because it relies on God's grace and not our efforts it's certain to be fulfilled and we see that we can never be prepared for God's grace because our God is a God of wonders a God of the impossible is anything too hard for the Lord let's pray Almighty God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you let its truth sink deep into our hearts, that we may begin to grasp the endless reach of your grace. Lord, we have heard this morning that you will stop at nothing to bring your good to your servant Abraham and his descendants. And we thank you for doing the impossible and saving us from our sin and the consequences of our selfish disbelief. And we thank you that your grace is all we need. Amen.